You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this afternoon, we have two readings. First is from the Old Testament, and it is Psalm 30. This afternoon we'll consider that part of the Apostles' Creed where we confess that Jesus Christ our Lord descended into hell. And it is, in fact, the Psalms that enlighten this phrase the most for us, and it's Psalms like Psalm 30. This Psalm speaks about, where David speaks about his experience of going down to the grave, going down to the pit, and he praises the Lord because he brought him up from that. He also expresses his terror and anxiety at considering the thought of going down to the grave. So let's read it together. Psalm 30. A psalm, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you have lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What gain is there in my destruction, my going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, Be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. And we'll also turn to the New Testament, to Matthew 27, beginning at verse 32, where we have the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ for his death on the cross. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chiefs, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from his cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said... I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came on over the whole land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. 
The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. We come now to our text, which is question answer 44 in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church there in the Apostles' Creed and as is explained in the Heidelberg Catechism, particularly the clause in the Creed, he descended into hell. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to that part of the Apostles' Creed where we confess that the Lord Jesus Christ descended into hell. Now the word hell itself is in our time a confusing word, or at least there's a lot of confusion about the word itself. It's used by all kinds of people and it's used with all sorts of different things in mind. It's used as a curse word. When people are upset or angry about something, they'll use this word to express their emotions, or they might not be angry and they just use this word as an accent point for what they're saying. It's popularly pictured as a place where Satan lives wearing all red and he has horns. Or it's also popularly understood as a place where really, really bad people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao those kind of people go to live after they die. Or it's also popularly understood as a place where people who don't feel like plucking on a harp for the rest of eternity go when they die. The Roman Catholic teaching on hell actually divides hell up into four different sections. There's four different parts of hell in the popular Roman Catholic teaching. There's two levels of limbo. Uh, there's the place where children, babies go before they're baptized. If they die before then, they go to a limbo. The saints of the Old Testament, they went to another limbo. And then there's two levels of hell underneath that. I'm saying this also because this is important for uh, considering the teaching of our catechism on the descent into hell. Probably the most popular view on hell today is that it's an ancient, now unpalatable, and unnecessary doctrine that if you're not a Christian, you certainly don't need need to believe in, but even many liberal Christians would say, we don't need hell anymore, we don't believe in that, that's not for us. But Orthodox Christianity, the Church of Jesus Christ that has existed from all times and places, confesses hell, and in fact, In what we considered this morning, we have a biblical picture of hell. Pastor Vischer referenced it. It's in Revelation 14, beginning at verse 9. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image 
or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. That's just one passage that speaks about the reality and also the terribleness of hell. And so the church confesses hell as a place of God's, where God pours out his anger and wrath on wicked people, on wicked demons, on Satan. At least he will after the final judgment. But it also confesses in some way that Christ descended there. Now, if the word hell means many different things to many different people, the descent into hell has the same problem. I wonder if we, when we confess the descent into hell, have a a clear picture in our mind of, of what does that mean? What do we confess when we say that? In what way? How? When did Christ descend into hell? And what does that mean in a biblical sense? And that's what we'll consider this afternoon under this theme that Jesus Christ suffered hell for his people. We'll consider this as it's confessed in the creed and then move from there to see what it means as we confess this in our lives. So Jesus Christ suffered hell for his people. That's what we confess in the creed. Now, we need to say a word about creeds as such, and that is that they are a summary of biblical teaching. If the creed doesn't summarize God's word, if there's something in the creed that doesn't jive with what God teaches in his word, then we need to be able to throw it out. If it's not biblical, it doesn't belong in the creed. And so if it's in the creed, it must be biblical. And that's what we need to consider this afternoon. Is this teaching of the descent into hell biblical? This is a phrase that's very easy to misinterpret, as I mentioned already. And it was misinterpreted by the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And and I, I mention the medieval Roman Catholic Church because that's the context in which the Heidelberg Catechism is written. It's written, it's written after years and years and years, centuries of teaching by the Roman Catholic Church, things that have been passed on from generation to generation in the church. And the catechism is a document of the Reformation, a group that came out of that Roman Catholic Church because of the disagreements based on God's word, based on the Bible that they had with some of these teachings in the church. And this was one of them, although not the most major one. Certainly, it was a disagreement. In the Roman Catholic Church, they would often refer to, when they talk about the descent into hell, they would, they would call it the harrowing or the destruction of hell that was done by Jesus Christ. And this was a time before television and things like that. And so, and it was also, in a sense, a biblically saturated culture, although all of the Bible didn't saturate them. But this idea of Christ descending into hell and, and as they taught, destroying it really captured the attention of a lot of people, a lot of theologians, even a lot of artists, a lot of playwrights wrote about this descent into hell. The Roman Catholic teaching, the, the picture of Christ descending into hell was that he went into the portion of hell which was not where the wicked were severely tormented, but where the holy and righteous people of the Old Testament were held until the time of Christ. They taught that, well, it doesn't make any sense. No one could go to heaven before Christ comes and, and, and 
achieves the salvation that would be able to bring them to heaven. And so they thought there must be somewhere else where the righteous people of the Old Testament go. Obviously, the wicked would be punished eternally, but where do the righteous go? And so they came up with this teaching of what I mentioned before, limbo. Limbo for the Old Testament saints. It had a fancy Latin name, but that probably wouldn't mean much to you. And so Christ, they taught, after he had died and been buried, he descended to that place where the Old Testament saints were, and he descended as a conqueror. And he came and he proclaimed his victory to to all of them, and he opened up the the gates of, of hell there, and he led all of them out and into heaven, into the presence of his Father. And like I said, this captured the attention of people. There were many medieval plays, especially in, in, in a region like Germany, especially during the time of Martin Luther. He writes about these plays that the, that the church would put on. And they would, they would come up with all sort of fancy ways that Christ went down into hell and how he proclaimed the victory and how strong he was when he picked up the gates of hell and threw them aside and led the saints out of there. Now this teaching does or, or tries to find a basis in the Bible, tries to find a basis in passages like 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. This is what it says there. It says that he, Christ, was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. There's also a passage in 1 Peter 4, verse 6, where it says, For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. And so the thought is then that this is saying that Jesus, after he had died, had gone somewhere and had preached to to spirits, to the spirits of men who had already died. Hence, the descent into hell. But closer inspection of these passages reveals the same thing, and that's that the preaching that was done to these saints was not done after Christ died, but had been done many years before. In fact, in the first passage, during the time of Noah. When it says, He was made alive by the Spirit, through whom He went and preached to the spirits in prison, that's saying that the same Spirit who made Christ alive was the Spirit who spoke through Noah to the people in Noah's time, judging them if they would not repent. And if you want a a reference or or if you wonder how that fits with the rest of the book of Peter, well, in 1 Peter 1, verse 11, we read about the Spirit of Christ who leads the prophets to prophesy what they had said. And that, of course, was also before the time that Christ came into the world. And so the preaching that is spoken of there is, yes, the the preaching of Christ, but it was Christ before he had become incarnate. It was Christ through his spirit and through the prophets and through those who had been sent to the people of the Old Testament to preach a repentance and faith in God, and so to avoid his wrath and judgment. And so the Bible doesn't teach that there's various levels of hell or that there are spirits locked up there when Christ who Christ preached to after his death. In fact, we know from the Lord's account of 
or from the account of the Lord's time on the cross, that he said to the thief who was hanging there with, with him, today you will be with me in paradise. Not in a few days or not in, not in several weeks or something like that, but today you will be with me. And when he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't commit his spirit into the hands of Satan and hell, or he didn't keep his spirit to himself until he would go and lead the saints into heaven. He he gave his spirit into his father's hands before he died. And so this, this medieval Roman Catholic teaching of the descent into hell does not fit with the biblical picture. Another question to ask would be, well, the, Roman, the medieval Roman Catholic Church didn't make up the creed. The creed had come long ago. What did the early church believe about the descent into hell? And the answer is, they believed all sorts of different things. There is not one. There is a line that emerges. That's the one that the Roman Catholic Church embraces. But there are good witnesses for several different views on the descent into hell. And so we can't look at the early church to find what exactly they meant, because it seems even different people in different places meant different things when they confessed the descent into hell. And so maybe you find this a little confusing. Well, if the early church didn't know what they, what they meant or if they meant different things, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I would remind you that when we confess as a church anything in our creeds or confessions, it must be grounded in biblical truth. And so to understand what the creed is talking about or to make sense of it or to judge it, we must go to God's Word. That will give us guidance. And so where in God's Word do we go to? Well, it's not to those passages in First Peter, as interesting as it might be to have Christ going down to hell after his death. No, in fact, the teaching of the descendant of hell comes from the Psalms. The Psalms. Now, why the Psalms? If you were to look in your concordance you wouldn't find descended into hell anywhere in the psalms but you need to do a little language translation there we say descended into hell in latin it's descended into something that sounds like inferno the inferno but that latin phrase in the old testament is descended into sheol or descended into what we sometimes translate sheol as the grave And so I'm going to highlight a few passages for you which speak about the saints going down to the grave or the wicked people going down to the grave and what that means to them. For example, David says in Psalm 16, he says, You will not abandon me to the grave, to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Or from Psalm 18, which we sang together, it stands at two in what we sang. It's verses four and six in in the Bible. It it says there, the cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave, the cords of Sheol coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before me into his ear. So so the grave, it's like it's reaching up and, and grabbing hold. We also read Psalm 30 together. I exalt you, O Lord, for you have lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemy gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called for you for help and you healed me. You brought me up from the grave, up from Sheol, and you spared me from going down into the pit. And then there's also Psalms that speak about the wicked going down to Sheol. Psalm 31, 16 through 18. 
Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in Sheol, in the grave. Let their lying lips be silent, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. There's other passages that we could cite as well that speak about the wicked going down to Sheol, that speak about the righteous with this fear of Sheol, fear of of the grave, and also passages which speak about the righteous being spared from Sheol, being spared from going down to the grave. So what do we get from this? The the picture that the Psalms give of, of this going down to Sheol, going down to the grave, going down to hell, however you want to put it. Well, one is from Psalm 18, that this going down to Sheol can be a process, a painful, difficult process. It's, it's a period of life. It's a time when, when struggles are coming around more and more and more, and so the sense is that you're going down. That's what going down to the grave can mean. It stands in for a difficult, painful process. Sheol is also the experience of the wicked. It's an experience of suffering for the wicked. Several psalms speak about the, the wicked going down to Sheol and there not finding any rest. We also learn from these, these psalms that speak about Sheol that the believer's hope lies in being rescued from Sheol, rescued from the grave, rescued from hell. But that there's still a sense of end, of finality. There is something to be feared. The Old Testament saint did not like the grave. They wanted to avoid the grave. They asked God to save them from the grave. And that makes sense. Because they didn't have the full revelation of God's work. They didn't have the the full revelation of the work of Christ as we have now. It hadn't happened yet. And so there was this sense of trepidation. There was this fear of the grave, of what that meant for them. They lived by faith in the promises of God, but they had not yet seen the fulfillment of those promises in the saving work of Jesus Christ. He had not yet come and conquered the grave. So they trusted in the Lord, but they didn't know what that meant exactly for their for the grave. And so when we confess that Jesus Christ descended into hell, we are on a solid biblical foundation. When we confess that Christ experienced unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony throughout all his suffering, but especially on the cross. Because this descent into hell was not something that happened after Jesus was dead and buried, but rather it describes the entire time from his incarnation to his burial. During that whole time, he descended into hell. During that whole time, the grave was standing at the end, was, was calling over him, was grabbing hold of him, was dragging him towards it as Satan worked against the Lord Jesus Christ, tempting him, causing him to suffer and be persecuted. And then obviously it speaks about that increased experience of anguish and torment on the cross, climaxing in three hours of darkness in which God poured out his anger and was completed as he lay among the dead. The Psalms, in fact, give us a a very complete picture of what that meant for our Lord Jesus Christ. And they speak prophetically. They speak about his coming. And now just one more thing about this in the creed. Then you might ask, well, why does it say that he, if we go through the creed, 
Why does it say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried? He descended into hell. Doesn't that mean that he, he descended into hell must describe a time after he was buried? Well, the fact is, no, we speak like this all the time. I can say, last week I went to Ontario, I saw my in-laws, I saw my family, I went to a conference on church planting and evangelism, I had a great time. Now, I didn't start having a great time after I went to the conference. That last phrase describes everything that happened before. That's what's going on in the creed as we confess the descent into hell. So with that picture of, of what we are really confessing when we confess he descended into hell, we need to move on, of course. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for, as we confess this in our lives? Well, to begin, we need to realize that all that Christ suffered while he was on this earth, on this earth he suffered as our, our mediator and our high priest, as our representative. This is the point that the, the book of Hebrews spends many chapters unfolding. Jesus Christ became a man in order to become our man, in order to become like us, to suffer and die, in order to completely change our experience of suffering and even of death, to completely change the experience for everyone who puts their trust in him. You put your trust in him, he's your mediator, he's your high priest. He suffered and died for you, and it changes how you suffer and die now. Notice that his work changes suffering and death. It does not immediately put a stop to suffering and death. Do Christians suffer? Yes, Christians suffer. According to Peter, it's the mark of bearing the name of Christ. Do Christians die? Yes, Christians die. Well-loved and sincere Christians are struck every day by, by disease and by motor vehicle accidents, by acts of crime, by warfare, by persecution, by sickness, by old age. Christians die. Those who put their hope and their faith and, and their trust in the work of Jesus Christ, accomplished on the cross, still experience suffering and death. But that experience is totally changed. It's a completely different experience because of what he's done. As the Catechism says, through the sufferings of Christ, our sorrows and temptations lead to assurance and comfort. James would even have the audacity to say, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. So to get a sense of, of what Christ accomplished for us, we should return to some of those psalms, those prophetic, spirit-inspired words that point us to the work of Christ. Because some psalms, they speak about anxiety, a fear of the grave. Psalm 6, I hadn't mentioned that one yet. That's David's cry from the heart during a time of great suffering. He says, heal me for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long? He, ex he expresses a sense of dread about death when he says, no one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? Those same sentiments are expressed in Psalm 30 as well. David recalls a great period of distress in his life and in the time of, because of his own sin, in fact, and in the time of Israel's history. And he says that at that time he called out to God and he said, what gain is there in my destruction? Am I going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? 
And so these psalms capture the voice of, of believers who suffer and who face death. There are real elements of, of fear and of, of anguish. Sometimes there's even elements of guilt and remorse. As someone thinks that this experience must be a punishment from God. Your conscience recalls all the reasons why God would have to strike you down. And you despair. But at the same time, even as David expresses these fears, notice that he expresses them to the Lord. He feels devastated, broken, and afraid, but yet he trusts in God's compassion, mercy, and love. In Psalm 30, he says, Hear me, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. Along with these fears of 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 pain and of anguish, these desperate cries for help, the Psalms also express a trust, even in the face of death. In Psalm 16, the same David who was at one time fearful of death confesses, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue also rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 says that David was prophesying about Christ here. God raised up Christ from the dead. He did not let his body decay. But the point that even David speaks about and that that Peter explains and that we confess is that because Christ is our mediator and our high priest, when God does not abandon him to the grave, God also lifts us up to the grave, even as we die. For Christ has borne the curse, and Christ has paid the wages of sin for us. And so in confidence, David can say in Psalm 49, God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And so, yes, God's people, that they have trepidation about the grave. Yes, God's people experience suffering. Yes, God's people die. But Jesus Christ radically changes this experience for them. He provides hope to those cries of anguish and despair and guilt. He renovates the grave for them into an entranceway into eternal life. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that our great mediator and high priest Jesus Christ, he suffered the agony and torment of hell during his whole life. As he met with Satan head on in temptation, as he was rejected by others, as he was persecuted by his countrymen, though he had done nothing wrong, he was bearing the sins of his people on his shoulders. He was suffering under the judgment of God. He carried our sins all the way to the cross where he experienced the full force of God's judgment until it reached its full height. He experienced the very worst of hell, God-forsakenness. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These two were words of David. These two were words from the psalm, Psalm 22. But although David felt forsaken by God, he wasn't. He wasn't. Not because David was such a great guy, but because David had a great Savior. 
Yet for Jesus, although it was almost inconceivable that the eternal Son of God would be utterly forsaken by His eternal Father, who He had dwelt with from all eternity, before time even began, He had lived with Him in perfect love and harmony and unity, had been completely in step with Him and in His presence the whole time. Yet God forsakes Him, turns His back on Him on the cross. It's almost inconceivable, but yet, brothers and sisters, we must believe it. Because he did it as your priest, as your mediator, as your substitute. The forsakenness and eternal punishments that our sins deserved, Jesus Christ experienced in the pain, anguish, torment, and agony of his sufferings. He cried out for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might learn. That we might learn in understanding his suffering. Understanding what his descent into hell means. Understanding all that he has done for us. That we might learn slowly. Note slowly. This is a process to learn this. But while he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We learn to cry even in, even in our worst times. Even as we, we feel that we are just being berated and battered on every side, we cry out, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? Completely in spite of me, Father, you have not forsaken me. Because I look to Christ and I see all that he bore. He bore for me. He went through the pain and anguish of hell that we might only experience God's blessing. We experience difficulties, even though we have phrases like hell on earth and and I went through hell there. The reality is that you did not. I did not. We did not. Hell is an experience of God's wrath and the absence of his love and grace that no one lives to tell about. No one. Except one. Jesus Christ himself. Because he suffered that. You never have to. We confess that Jesus Christ descended into hell so that you can be assured and comforted in your greatest sorrows and temptations. Sometimes we feel forsaken by God, but Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus felt forsaken by God and he was forsaken by God. And because Jesus was forsaken by God, therefore, no matter how you feel, You are not forsaken by God. We confess that Jesus Christ suffered hell for us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.